Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today I'm going to present the audio from a debate between myself and Vox Day. Vox Day is a science fiction author, a popular blogger at voxday.blogspot.com, and if you follow Science Fiction Awards, he's the guy behind the rabid puppies controversy. Earlier today, we debated free trade, and people could both watch and listen to his to the debate. And with Vox's permission, I recorded the debate so I could put it on my podcast. So uh, here is the debate, and I start at the beginning where they asked the people watching the debate how many supported my position and how many supported his. And at the end of the debate, they did that again to determine who wins. In general. Um, it's 35 free trade, 80 against free trade, and 55 neutral. Okay. All right. So uh, we have about an hour and five minutes to go for the actual debate, and Dr. Miller is going to start us off. Okay. Well, thanks very much. So let's consider a thought experiment. Imagine that I invent a machine that you pour wheat into, and then it rearranges the molecules in wheat and turns it into a car. And I can do this, and I, the car I end up getting is cheaper and of higher quality than the cars made by U.S. auto workers. Now let me ask, should the U.S. government ban my machine? It is true that my machine will put some auto workers out, out of work, and that's too bad, that you know we should have sympathy for them. But you know, you don't want to ban all technological progress. We'd still be living in caves if we wanted to protect every job. So I think if my machine really could, you know, turn weed into cars and the cars were of better quality and cheaper than American-made cars, we, we should welcome my innovation. Now imagine instead, I don't have a machine that can rearrange the molecules in wheat, but what I have is a really big ship. And I can take the wheat grown by farmers in Iowa and I ship it to Japan, I sell it for yen, I use the yen to buy cars, and then I ship the cars back to the farmers in Iowa. There's really economically no difference. In both cases, Iowa farmers are effectively growing cars, whether they're doing it because we're using some science fiction method to rearrange the molecules in the wheat, or whether we're doing it because they do what's called roundabout production, where you, grow, you produce one good and then you trade it for the good that you want. There isn't a difference, and if, my, my main point in, in these debates are going to be, if you support innovation, you really should support trade. And the arguments people make against trade, that it can cost jobs, it can lower salaries, those arguments apply really equally to, to tech, any type of technological progress. Now, everyone benefits from trade, literally everyone. Because in a world without trade, we're all doing everything for ourselves. We're all living in caves. Most of us would die very, very quickly. Because trade is a big reason why we're so much richer than cavemen were. And the basic economic point of trade is there's not a whole lot of difference between trading with someone within your country and trading with people in other countries. And so, you know, the more trade you can have, the richer you can be. One of the big issues in economics is why are we so rich? And we are fantastically rich compared to people who lived in past times. 
And a big part of the answer is because of trade. We have so much more trade. There's so many more people connected to the global trade network. And that that's really plays a huge role in how much wealth we have. Now, there's certainly a lot of problems with the world economy. But if you cut back on trade, you would make those problems worse. One of the big advantages of trade is that trade promotes innovation. Imagine you're a pharmaceutical company and you're thinking, should we put the money in to try to come up with, say, some new cure for cancer? You know, it's very expensive and it might not work. So you're going to consider if we do come up with this cure for cancer, how many people can we sell it to? Well, the more trade there is, the more, the more you'll make if you come up with a cure for cancer and the more likely it is you'll start the innovation. And this applies with more mundane innovations. You make refrigerators and you're thinking of coming up, you know, researching a, a better way to keep refrigerators cool, to, to have them use less energy, to have them break down a bit less. Well, the, more market, the greater the market for refrigerators, the more people you can sell your product to, the more willing you'll be, able, be willing to do innovation. And of course, people in other countries have much greater incentives to innovate because we can trade with them. Chinese scientists are much more likely to try to develop new products, advanced science, if they know they can trade with us. Trade really promotes what's called low marginal cost, high fixed cost products. So I mean, forgive me for using a bit of economic terminology, but marginal cost refers to the cost of making one more copy of the good. So something like software, it's very, very low, or, or with a book or a movie. Once you've got the first copy down, it's really cheap to, making, to keep making new copies. Fixed costs are the cost to make the first good. So with something like a movie or a book, it's you know, really tough to get that first copy. When you allow a lot of trade, you're going to get a lot more resources put into these low marginal cost goods, things like software, movies, and books because you'll know you can recover your fixed costs if you can sell lots and lots of copies. Because again, the cost to making a movie is going to be about the same regardless of how many people see it. But if you can potentially sell it to people in China, in Japan, as, you know, as well as the United States, you're going to be much more likely to try to make that movie. You'll be able to put in more money in special effects, hire better actors, hire better writers. Trade also greatly promotes specialization. One of the a, a big reason why trade promotes wealth creation is it allows people to specialize and do very, very narrow tasks. And the more narrow you can focus on what you do, the better you can get at, at that one thing. So, for example, if you, you take the, the book industry. You know, if, you, if there's a huge market, a large number of people who are capable of buying your book, you can focus on a book that only appeals to a very small percentage of the population. And so you can make that book something those people really like. In contrast, without trade, you have to have sort of a wider net. You have to get a higher percentage of people who might like the book. And that means your book won't quite serve as well people, people who, um, who, who might buy it. Uh, same with medicine. If you can specialize, if you're a doctor and you can see patients throughout the whole world, you can specialize in some very, very rare condition that very few people have, but you'll still be able to get enough patients to sustain your livelihood if you can trade throughout the world. In contrast, if your practice is limited to a small geographic area, you can't really get very good at treating any one rare disease. So we're all much better off if doc, a lot of doctors can specialize, they focus on one narrow thing, and they get extremely good at it.
Now, a lot of people complain that when the United States trades with a poor country, it puts downward pressure on American wages. And it's certainly true that there's a lot of people in poor countries who have wages that are much lower than what Americans earn. And it's true that some people do see their, their wages go down because of this. But first we have to remember that money is really only useful for what it can buy. So let's say that you know, Americans are now buying cars made in Mexico because those cars are cheaper than cars made in the United States. It's true U.S. auto workers, you know, they'll be hurt by this, but everyone else will effectively gotten a raise because if it's cheaper for you to buy your cars now than it used to be because of trade, your paycheck goes farther. Um, another advantage of trade is that it tends to reduce corruption. Companies tend to get very good at playing the political game in their own country. And so they can win competitions not by making better products, but by getting their rivals' products blocked you know, because the, they, the regulators find something wrong with them. The advantage of international trade is that it's harder for companies to win customers through really winning politicians. They have to be more honest and they, they have to you know, make better quality products. Let's just think through of what would happen if, say, the United States, if, if an American were to buy Japanese cars. So an American spends dollars to buy a Japanese car. So the American gets a car, which is good, because the American obviously wanted the car, and a Japanese company gets some dollars. What could that Japanese company do with the dollars that would be harmful to America? I mean, first, if they just kept the dollars and did nothing with them, that would be great. We would have gotten a good, something really nice for giving away pieces of paper. If the person in Japan uses the dollars to buy American goods, well, good, then, you know, Americans are making products, they're selling them to Japan, and there are Americans who had jobs that you know, were used to make the goods. Or the Japanese could use the dollars to buy American assets, but that means they're investing in our country. They're helping us to build factories. And eventually, they'll probably sell the assets, but they'll do that so they can buy American goods. So there's really nothing that the Japanese could do with the dollars they get from us that would harm us. Um, so, I mean, the, the, it's, there, there's not really a, a, there isn't really any damage that comes about when we buy goods made in other countries. Um, I think the, those are my opening comments. So, uh, Vox, do you have... Uh, Happy to hear your response. Sure. Thank you. I'll turn my camera on. Yep, I'll turn mine off. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank Dr. Miller for, uh, for that uh, lecture in, in free trade. Um, and everything that he said makes uh, superficial sense from a logical standpoint. My critique of free trade is uh, both logical, it is uh, historical, and it is also practical. Now, I'll begin first with my statement, and then I will address some of the points that he raised. So, um, first of all, free trade in its true, complete, and intellectually coherent form is not limited to the free movement of goods, but includes the free movement of capital and of labor as well. Uh, this is adequately supported uh, by citing everybody from uh, Milton Friedman and 
um, and Ludwig von Mises and many other economists of the, of the right and left alike. Um, two, the difference between domestic economies and the global international economy is not trivial, but is substantive, material, and based on significant genetic, cultural, traditional, and legal differences between various self-identified peoples. Third, free trade is totally incompatible with national sovereignty, democracy, and self-determination, as well as the existence of independent nation states with the sovereign right and ability to set their own laws according to the preferences of their residents. And fourth, therefore, free trade must be opposed by every sovereign, democratic, or self-determined people who wish to preserve themselves as a free and distinct nation possessed of its own culture, tradition, and laws. Now, I'm going to address uh, some of the points that, you know, these are separate issues than the points that Dr. Miller raised, but I want to address uh, Dr. Miller's points as well. And also, I should mention, Dr. Miller has said that he distinguishes between the free trade of goods and the free trade of people. Um, I don't think that that's possible for reasons that we'll probably get into um, after he, after he uh, presents his next bit, but um, a, uh, a good point. However, uh, Dr. Miller only raised half the point. The problem is, if your preferred specialty elsewhere, then you must, in, in a global tr uh, free trade environment, then you must emigrate in order to work in that field. It's fine to talk about uh, you know, how a doctor who wants to specialize in um, some obscure uh, practice you know, has global reach and is able to treat people from all over the world. But if the only place that he can do that is in Hong Kong, then he has to move to Hong Kong to do it. Um, if we're going to use a much more common example, if you want to work in robotics, you are probably going to have to move to Korea or Japan at some point in time. You're not going to be able to do it in the US because of the specialization is going to be taking place in a specific place. Uh, the, an, another point that he raised was that, uh, and a very important point, he um, said that trade allows for more innovation due to larger markets. And again, that only covers the positive side. It doesn't cover the much greater downside. And frankly, the evidence does not support this. Um, the, uh, the amount of innovation that is taking place has actually been on the decline. You'll see numerous, um, you know, for all that we have some neat stuff, we've got iPhones and we've got the internet and that sort of thing. Um, the speed uh, of innovation has declined significantly since, uh, you know, over the past 150 years. If you look at the amount of change that took place in human lifetimes between 1900 and 1950, that is considerably more change than took place between 1950 and 2015. Um, furthermore, uh, there, there are numerous problems that, that free trade brings about that inhibits innovation. For example, the amount of innovation in the United States has slowed considerably due to the inability of startups to compete with the low-cost, debt-financed, large multinationals. It is very, very hard for you to start up and compete with Google. That, you know, Google has, and it's not only hard for you or, you know, for you in the United States, for me in Europe, it is very difficult for someone in, in China or someone in Japan to start up and, 
and uh, launch in their own market and eventually come out onto the world stage the way that they used to be able to do because Google is already in India. Google is already everywhere. And so um, I, I don't think that there has been a lot of, of work on this topic yet, but my belief is that the downside of uh, free trade is actually more inhibits innovation more than it uh, enhances it. Um, Dr. Miller also raised the point that trade allows the benefit of other people's innovation. Um, that benefit does not exist when you are trading with uh, populations that are, are predominantly much lower IQ, um, that simply don't have uh, infrastructure, that don't have, uh, you know, they don't have the infrastructure either academic or intellectual. Um, if you look at the amount of science being produced as it's measured in paper, uh, papers published or um, any other standard, um, we are not getting much benefit out of innovation in Algeria. We're not going to get benefit. We're going to not going to get any benefit out of trade with the Bahamas. You know, we're not going to get any benefit out of trade with um, any nation that is is populated by people who are simply fundamentally and intrinsically less capable of innovation than um, uh, than the United States or than other innovative cultures. Um, you know, and also I should mention just, you know, living in Europe, innovation is also a, a cultural thing. You know, there's, there's far less innovation that comes out of, uh, say, Switzerland than there is out of Germany, even simply because the cultures are different. Um, then, uh, let's see here. On the corruption issue, um, I actually think that this is exactly backwards. If you think about it, uh, who are some of the great champions of trade in the United States? Um, Bill Clinton is one of the top uh, champions of trade, and he is arguably one of the most corrupt politicians that, that the U.S. has seen in, in some time. Um, trade has actually significantly increased corruption as the corporations, the, the multinational corporations, play one economy against the other. So what this means, you know, that um, Dr. Miller is referring to a real problem. You know, he was, he was talking about how we have these corrupt politicians um, and the, the way that the, um, the various manufacturers are able to play politics with the politicians. Um, and so there is a, a corrupt aspect of protectionism. But that corruption is, is trivial when compared to the amount of corruption involved in the large multinational corporations who are... Uh, able to blackmail entire governments. You know, just recently we've seen uh, we've seen large corporations like PayPal um, even begin telling North Carolina what sort of laws they're allowed to pass. Um, so, um, furthermore, uh, trade imports corrupt people and practices from elsewhere. Um, it's inter been interesting to see how companies like Macmillan and and other companies have been forced to adopt. Um, much more rigorous uh, corporate policies simply because in the process of working in, in countries where corruption is more normal, um, they rapidly began adopting the practices of those country, uh, countries and you know, corrupted their own institutions. Um, and then um, I believe that was as far as we got on Okay, and then the last point, he, so anyhow, I don't think that trade encourages honesty. I think that trade actually encourages dishonesty and corruption. 
then I think that it's, it's easily proven if you simply look at the track record and the, the way that large corporations have had to um, adopt new policies addressing uh, problems of corruption that they never had before. Uh, finally, um, I think that it is uh, absolutely absurd to say that uh, American dollars uh, going abroad cannot harm the USA. Um, it, this, you know, even if we set aside the obvious of American dollars being used to purchase weapons or whatever, um, you know, the problem of you know, there's a reason why we don't permit um, companies to uh, foreign com companies to you know, buy U.S. assets across the board. Um, you know, let's be ridiculous. Let's take it to the to the um, argumentum ad absurdum level and say, um, if we have enough trade with China that they are able to purchase the, all the assets of the United States. Is that going to benefit us or is that going to harm us? Is, you know, is, it, is turning the entire country into the, the uh, equivalent of a, a renter to the benefit of those there and is that going to increase uh, long-term thinking or short-term financial rapine? Um, you know, I, I think that um, that it can be a good thing, you know, certainly trade can be a good thing, but I think that it is naive to say that it's, it's impossible for it to, um, to harm, uh, to harm the, the country from where the, the money is being, uh, is being spent. Finally, um, the most serious problem with free trade um, is what I alluded to before, and that is uh, with regards to the freedom of movement. Um, like I said, I, I expect Dr. Miller will want to address this, but the reality is that uh, just as going to war inevitably means bringing in large numbers of immigrants from the country where you went to war, you know, for example, um, most of the Muslims living in France are Algerians who were uh, allies of the French in Algeria who then needed to be brought to France because they would have been killed by the Algerians. And so now the French have a huge uh, problem with the Algerian population in France. In the same way, trade necessarily requires the movement of people for numerous reasons. Um, it's, you know, for example, how do you trade with Japan if you don't send your employees to Japan? How does China trade with the USA if they don't send people to, to China? And then, you, then once you start having that those connections being made, suddenly the guy who goes to Japan and comes back, he meets a Japanese girl, he brings her back. Uh, I mean, that may sound silly, but um, you know, Martin Van Kreppel showed that over, uh, over a million uh, um, war brides uh, were brought home to, uh, to the U.S. and the Western allies um, as a result of World War II. So you know, we're not talking at, um, intrinsically small numbers here that, that you might assume. If, even if you're just talking about the free movement of people that relates from non-economic factors. So, um, so I will turn it over to Dr. Miller here, but that is my uh, response to his initial, his initial uh, argument. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, Fox. Let me address your last point first. I think free trade can actually reduce immigration pressures. Take the U.S. and Mexico. The greater the a difference in wealth between the average American and the average Mexican, the more, more Mexicans are going to desire to come to the United States, legally or otherwise. So 
if through trading with Mexico, we can make Mexico a bit richer and make Mexico catch up to us a bit more, then there'll be less pressures for Mexicans to illegally um, immigrate to the United States. As for the idea of people specialize, you know, it, it is true. You are right. It's certainly possible that if South Korea or Japan develops a specialty in one area, then Americans who want to, to engage in that specialty might feel obligated to, to immigrate. But first, if a lot of Americans really didn't want to do that, then there would be an advantage for a company to say, well, even though there's a specialty in Mexico dealing with robotics, we're going to open up a factory or we're going to open up a research center in the United States because we'll be able to pay lower wages. I think one of the big differences between us in terms of national sovereignty and consumer sovereignty, I admit I don't care that much about national sovereignty. It doesn't matter to me that much if American politicians you know, don't really get to do what they want to in terms of crafting economic laws. I, I would actually like that. If trade restricts the freedom of American politicians to do what they otherwise want to do, I would think that's a benefit of trade. What I care more about is the sovereignty of individuals and consumers. And trade, of course, increases that because trade gives you more options. You can certainly, you know, you could buy goods in the United States and you could, you know, you could buy goods from Japan. With trade, it's, it, is, it might be easier to leave the country. So this might be an error. One of the reasons why we disagree is that we have different values. I, I tend to be very distrustful of politicians of all countries. So if you're telling me that, well, trade means they have less sovereignty because of trade, they can't implement the tax policies that otherwise want to. They can't regulate companies quite as much because they'll lose out. You know, if, if there's a lot of free trade and you put too many restrictions on what your companies can do, then you make the products in your country not competitive. And then through trade, you know, those companies will lose out. I think that's a benefit of trade, again, because I, I don't trust politicians. I have far more trust in the market. I have far more trust in politicians. than. Um, so as for your other points, for um, innovation slowing down, people have been debating that. There you have an issue of causation. Even if innovation has been slowing down, is trade the cause? I mean, my guess would be if you do think it's slowing down, it would have slowed down even faster absent trade. The argument for why innovation is slowing down is sort of a low-hanging fruit idea that once we industrialized and married science to industry, we were pretty much destined to discover really important things like radios and indoor plumbing, and we kind of run out of those, but that's not due to trade, that's just you know due to having picked all the low-hanging fruit. And then if we didn't have trade, we'd even get a lot less innovation than before. As to your point about you know, not all countries are as innovative as the United States, I mean, that, that's certainly true, which of course that means that we have an advantage in creating innovation. So if you do like to innovate, you, you, know, you, you can earn a much higher salary because so much of the other world isn't nearly as good at science and engineering as we are. But even people in countries where they don't really have science down yet, they still can contribute to innovation by helping to make our products made more cheaply. So with, with something like the iPhone, if you know Americans innovate and they come up with designs for the iPhone, they'll they'll still need to have the iPhone made. And if you know you can make the iPhone a lot cheaper, if you have people in poor countries manufacturing it, then there'll be more resources put into Americans coming up with ways of innovating. Also, of course, it's not it's not enough just to have people innovate. It's not enough to have engineers figure out the way of designing a product. You also want people to be able to afford the product. And a lot of products are becoming much, much cheaper. I mean, certainly computers, televisions, 
microwave ovens, refrigerators are becoming cheaper and they're becoming of much higher quality. So one of the ways the trade has increased innovation is by spreading out these innovations through the world, but also you know, through, through the United States. And we should expect this trend to continue. Um, actually, I should admit the camera cut out for a little bit of what you were saying, so I, I won't be able to respond to everything you're saying. I think I lost about two, two or three minutes. You, you mentioned how it's very hard for a lot of startups to compete with Google. Um, that is certainly true, but that would probably be just as true without trade. I mean, you know, because there is trade, it, you know, you, if, if you do make a product, you have the opportunity to perhaps sell it throughout the whole world. And so even though it's hard to compete with Google, there are more, there's more potential customers. So Google getting 90% of some relevant American market will you know, make innovation much harder than if they get 90% of the world market because that leaves a lot more for potential startups to take in. Also, I should address your point about people in certain cultures not being able to innovate. I mean, most of these countries, I think you'll find they're still sending some people to American colleges and some of them are very smart and maybe they can't contribute to innovation in their home country, but they are at MIT, they're research assistants for their professors. And again, certainly not all countries certainly don't equal cultures of science. I'm not, I can't credibly claim that. But, you know, there's a lot of people from a lot of countries who are contributing to, uh, to science. Uh, so... Now, I, in, in terms of people buying up assets, uh, it's certainly true if you have some country that's against us and they buy up our assets that could potentially do some harm, but even then it's kind of hard. I mean, even if China were to buy up a lot of U.S. assets, they wouldn't really have an incentive to misuse their assets, to, to waste them, because if they did, they'd be outcompeted by American companies who still had some U.S. assets. The only real danger is in issues of where there's military technology, and there I would agree with you. We, we don't want people from governments that aren't friendly to us to, you know, to buy our defense contractors. And we, you know, we might not want countries that are kind of crazy like North Korea to buy anything because then they could, they could ship in, I don't know, um, weapons or something under the guise of trading with us. Um, to your point about you know, immigrants, if we trade with Japan, then there'll be some Americans who go to Japan and they'll marry Japanese women. I, I agree that's true, but I, I would say that is a, a very good thing. I mean, we live in an extremely dangerous world, and it's useful if there's a lot of social connections. I mean, we could just destroy our world like in you know, a matter of minutes. I, I, I like the idea that there are Americans married to people in every country. I like the idea that the elites are connected and, and know each other and understand each other's culture. And this is a benefit of trade, not a cost. I think this makes war a lot less likely. The more we understand people, the less likely we are to go to war. It doesn't eliminate the possibility of war, but this is a good thing. The bigger your country, the less likely trade is going to cause a lot of your people in your country to go someplace else. Like, you know, Singapore trades a lot and it's very rich. And there are a lot of Singaporeans who get very well educated in Singapore and they leave Singapore for better opportunities. But Singapore is a tiny city state. So the bigger your country is, the less you need to worry about trade causing lots of people to leave. And of course, the United States is, is giant. So I, I don't think that's as big of a concern as it would be uh, for a smaller country. Uh, so um, over to you, Vox. Thank you. Uh, sorry to hear it cut out a bit, but um, hopefully we'll, uh, it'll show up on the recording. 
Okay, so let's talk about, let's go further into the question of mobility. Um, now, obviously, if you make the country the size of the world, you can say that there's no problem with um, anyone going anywhere because there's nowhere else to go. Um, but the reality is that uh, the U.S., uh, you know, it, it's very common to hear people say that uh, if, uh, if, the, um, if we looked at international trade the same way we look at domestic trade, then the, there's nothing to fear because, you know, we don't, we don't have laws about uh, uh, goods transferring from uh, California to uh, California to South Dakota or, or Iowa to Florida. Um, there's no problems caused by that. The reality is that there is a very serious problem caused by that, and that's labor mobility. You know, people have to move in order to chase their jobs. Now, in the USA, the rate of labor mobility is... 3.2% uh, per year. What that means is that um, compared to the U.S., uh, compared to Europe, prior to the establishment of the EU, um, only 0.1% of the working age population changed its, its country of residence in a given year. In the USA, 3.2% of the working age population changes its state of residence in a, in a, in a given year. Now, the problem is uh, with that is that over time, it, it completely transforms the nature of the uh, state, um, both the state uh, of birth as well as the, the new state. You know, there's a reason why people talk about is bumper stickers saying don't Californicate Washington or don't Californicate Colorado, and it's already too late. The political culture of those states has already been transformed. Now we're starting to see Californians excess. So, um, now that you know, over time, what that's resulted in is um, in the West, only 40% of the people uh, resident in the U.S. West are um, are still living in their state of birth. Uh, the reason that the the U.S. Midwest is, has been tr less transformed than the other states is because 65% of the people who are born, 65% uh, of the people who are resident in the Midwest. Um, were born there. And so if we, uh, if we uh, look at that labor mobility and we extend it to the entire world, which we have to, because we've seen with the European Union that uh, with the Schengen Agreement and with the um, uh, increase in the free flow of goods uh, throughout the continent of Europe, they have seen um, an increase in the labor mobility that they wanted to see, and, um, and that is causing tremendous problems all across Europe. Um, if we apply that to the globe, what that would mean is that by the time you turned 35, you would have about 49% of Americans would have to emigrate and leave the country. Now, you know, I understand that if you believe that consumer sovereignty is the most important thing, you don't necessarily see that as a problem. As long as every person is um, believes they're financially better off and they're happy to do that, then, um, then you're naturally going to support that. But um, for those of us who believe in the concept of the nation and 
uh, as I demonstrated yesterday in the blog, even a, a radical libertarian like, um, like Murray Rothbard finally concluded after seeing the, the results of the, um, the Yugoslavian wars, uh, he finally concluded that there is such a thing as a nation and that libertarians and, and economists like Dr. Miller are fundamentally making a mistake by confusing the nation with the state. Now, it's true. There is an issue of uh, corruption, um, and it's, it's perfectly rational to distrust uh, politicians. But politi as, as bad as politicians are, they're at least theoretically accountable. And what Dr. Miller is suggesting is that we trade accountable politicians for unaccountable corporate boards who have no loyalty whatsoever to the nation, who are uh, literally an elite pirate class, and who are going to ruthlessly and shamelessly take advantage of whatever nation they happen to find it advantageous to locate in for the time being. And, and furthermore, they have absolutely no incentive to concern themselves with the good of the, the local communities or even the national communities where they happen to be parked for the moment. You know, we see this happen all the time. We see uh, you know, corporations are perfectly happy to uproot themselves and, and move somewhere else um, just for a, 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 you know, reducing a few percentage points of tax. Now, um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the main, the fundamental problem I see with the free trade advocates is that um, I think that it is a, um, it's a beautiful vision, but the reality and, 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 and again, it's a beautiful vision from the 18th century. You know, when, when Ricardo and Adam Smith were talking about the division of labor and trade, the, the free movement of people and the mobility and the destruction of nations was not possible. But thanks in part to innovation and the improvements in technology um, and, and all those sorts of good things, we now have a fundamentally different situation where the, not only the state, but the nation, the very concept of, of uh, compatible people living together is intrinsically threatened by free trade. And moreover, this was known. This is why Karl Marx supported free trade, is because he said free, free trade fundamentally disrupts culture. And because he wanted to disrupt the culture of Western civilization, because he wanted to fundamentally transform it into uh, a very different vision, he supported free trade because of its intrinsically cultural, it, its intrinsically cultural destruction. Um, I want to raise a, one more point before I turn it back over to Dr. Miller. Um, you know, economics um, at its core knows that this is true. And the evidence we have for that is the change in the statistical term from gross national product to gross domestic product. Now, when I was younger, um, I, I remember it, we always used to talk about GNP, gross national product. And it was changed to gross domestic product, and I, I didn't really understand why, and finally I, I looked it up. And it turned out that gross national product actually referred to the uh, buying and selling and et cetera of the nationals, no matter where they lived. So if you were an American, 
then uh, your activity, your economic activity, was supposed to uh, be measured um, as an American rather than um, as part of you know, Hong Kong or, or Russia or anywhere else you happen to reside. They changed that to gr gross domestic product because they, they wanted to transform the measuring system from the nation to the state. And so um, the, the fact that that was necessary indicates that there is a intrinsic understanding on the part of uh, at least those economists who are responsible for that transformation that um, trade in general, free trade in particular, is, in, is intrinsically antithetical to nationalism, national sovereignty, and, um, and because civilization depends upon uh, nations and national sovereignty, it's intrinsically a, opposed to civilization itself. I'll turn it back over to Dr. Miller now. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Fox. So I, I have a question for you next time you respond. Do you agree with my core point that greatly restricting trade would make the U.S. poorer? I, I, I accept your point that you know we, if we had trade, there would be more labor, um, labor mobility and maybe it would dilute U.S. culture. But do you accept my point that if we have a lot, more, lot less trade, that we would be poorer? I do think that. And if that is true, then you have to say a lot of U.S. sovereignty comes from U.S. military power. And if restricting trade makes us poorer, we'll spend less on defense and we'll be weaker. Well, you know, China embraces trade more than we do, and it's true that trade leads more to wealth creation, then China will grow in power and will slowly lose sovereignty. Do I you think want I, me to address that now? Oh, yeah, certainly. Okay. Um, I would say that <laughs> five years ago I would have agreed with you, um, but I do not agree with that anymore for two reasons. Um, number one... Um, if we look at the, if we look at both the um, free trade calculations, uh, I took some notes here. The some free traders um, have repeatedly estimated that um, ending government restrictions, uh, basically having complete free trade, including the movement of people, would cause the global income per person to rise from sixteen thousand to um, uh, something like thirty-three thousand. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, that sounds great, but that is lower than the income per person for the United States um, and for most of the wealthier countries. And that is also why, you know, the, the massive immigration that we've seen in the free trade and et cetera, that's also why we've seen um, U.S. wages stagnate. You know, we've, we're still below the, his, the historical wage peak in the USA of 1973. Now, we do have... You know, we do have a uh, a lot of consumption. We do we so from that perspective, it looks like the USA is extremely wealthy, despite the fact that that real wages have been stagnant since 1973. But the problem is, is that we've done all that on credit, and so um, I think that a lot of the um, I think that a lot of the uh, wealth, the perceived wealth of the United States. Um, that we credit to either innovation or free trade um, is actually uh, is actually um, only apparent wealth, and it's based on a, a very false foundation of debt. Um, also, I would point out that um, 
for example, Switzerland is wealthier than the USA, and Switzerland has very strict um, uh, import laws. They have pretty high tariffs on everything, and more, they actually require, um, I don't know the exact percentage in general, but on average, they require uh, domestic production to be about 70% of, of the country's needs. It varies from uh, product to product, but I have a friend who was, uh, has something to do with the tobacco industry, and he told me that they actually uh, grow something like, they have to grow 60% of the tobacco in the cigarettes that are, are smoked in Switzerland have to be grown, uh, have to be made from Swiss-grown tobacco. And so the, if, you know, the U.S. is much, much bigger than Switzerland and has uh, far more natural resources and everything. So um, I think that, uh, I don't think that the U.S. would be less wealthy um, if it was to, um, you know, take a more, uh, you know, take a more uh, restrictive approach. Okay. Well, I'll go back to you. Okay. Well, thank you for that answer. Uh, I disagree. I mean, we have the way to determine, I think, if trade increases wealth or not is really to look at countries that have gotten very rich very quickly recently. I mean, we have South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, China, and they all did this by significantly increasing how much they've traded. So it, it does seem internationally there's a strong relationship between trading a lot and getting richer. Countries that have tried to get rich without trading, like no, notably Brazil, they really failed at it. And India, before it embraced international markets, also was unable to get richer. Um, I don't know a lot about Switzerland. I do know European agricultural production, though, is horrible. It's certainly true the government greatly restricts trade, but their agricultural sector is much worse than ours, and it makes Europe much poorer. I, I have to imagine that um, the Swiss would be much richer on average if they didn't restrict um, agricultural imports. I do agree with you, the United States is borrowing far too much, but I would put the blame entirely on the government. It's, you know, politicians seem to want to borrow money, the Democrats want to spend money, the Republicans want to lower taxes, no one's really worried about a balanced deficit, a balanced budget, and this is a long-term problem. But again, I think that's independent of, of trade. For what you, you talked about before about corporations not caring about their community, I mean, that is certainly true. You can model corporations as, as sociopaths. But here you have what economists refer to as Adam Smith's invisible hand, that the reason why capitalism is so great at creating wealth is that even if you're completely self-interested, often markets will cause you to do the right thing. That mark, you know, in terms of maximizing the wealth of your community. I mean, if you're a pharmaceutical company, you don't give a damn about anything but profits. You're still going to try to come up with a cure for cancer. If you're Google and you care nothing about the entire world, all you care about is your corporate profits. You'll still want to make as good of a search engine as you can. If you're Apple and again you care nothing about people, there's a way. If there's a way of making the iPhones that are cheaper and more reliable, you're going to do it. I mean, a big reason why we've done so well since the Industrial Revolution is because of Adam Smith's invisible hand, is because you take someone who's completely selfish, but you put them in a market economy, and not always, but often the way they can most better themselves is by making their community richer. And so that's why I would trust these corporate boards more than I trust politicians. There's nothing equivalent for politicians. There's no equivalent of Adam Smith's invisible hand that's driving self-interested politicians to do something that just happens to be in the best interest 
of, of the United States. While Google being completely selfish, they do have an incentive to come up with better products and to think you know, long term because the stock market often puts a lot of value on the long term because the stock market is uh, forward looking. The, the final point you, you mentioned is about um, trade leading to uh, mobility in, in labor. It is certainly true that a lot of economists who support free trade in goods also support free trade in labor. So those ideas are intellectually connected. Um, I, I don't support free trade in people for probably some of the similar reasons that you would give. And I don't think you need to have a, a lot of immigration to have free trade in goods. You certainly need some, but you could, you could certainly have it well below 1%. I mean, so you could you could have it in the in the thousands. You just need you know members of the elite to come over and sort of figure out what's going on. Um, you can certainly I think separate goods and people, and there's a lot of countries that that seem to do that. You're going to have some intermixing, which that doesn't I don't think that bothers me as much as you. But you certainly don't need a lot of people moving about if you're going to be trading just goods. Um, so um, Vox. Okay. All right. Um... I think we have fundamentally two differences of, of, of opinion that um, are, are intrinsic. One of them, obviously, is, is the question of uh, individual sovereignty versus national, national sovereignty. The other one is uh, a lot of your views. I, I keep hearing you say, I can't imagine... Um, it should, uh, you know, most of your positions are almost entirely theoretical. And there's an old saying that uh, let reason be silent when experience gainsays its conclusions. And, you know, the, most of the arguments that you're presenting are simply updated versions of, you know, very classical arguments, which, you know, as, as you just said, they go back to the invisible hand. And... And the problem is that while these arguments are attractive and, for the most part, logically consistent, they simply don't stand up to what we, how we've seen them play out in the real world. Let me give you an example. Um, you talk about the uh, invisible hand and uh, the incentives for politicians versus the incentives for corporations. Well, let me turn it around for you. I, I, will, I will imagine for you um, incentives for politicians that are reliable. A politician needs to live in the country that he, uh, that he uh, serves in office. He has to please the people um, you know, in order to get reelected. He needs to please the people in order to not get shot. Um, he, has, he also has... Um, the, you know, he may actually have, we can imagine that he's actually a genuine public servant who is, is doing his best to look out for the nation. Um, I mean, that may sound ridiculous, but, um, but you know, there have been politicians like that in the past, and we can hope for them in the future. Um, on the other hand, when we're talking about corporations, um, I can assure you, uh, you know, being personal, having been personally acquainted with Ken Lay of Enron, that... Uh, the invisible hand is not sufficient to keep them in line. You talk about how they have a motivation for a cure for cancer. That's true, but they have a, uh, an even bigger financial motivation to uh, cause cancer 
and then to provide some sort of drug that would keep it under control and manage it and turn it into a lifelong uh, manageable condition where they can, instead of curing uh, the, the person once and for all, they can keep them dependent on buying the, the drugs from uh, the pharmaceutical company. Now, there are even people who suggest that that is, uh, that is um, an actual ongoing problem with related to some of the more ridiculous vaccines that have been introduced. Um, we don't need to get into that now. But the point is, is that you can at least imagine how the, uh, the sociopathic corporate elites could, um, you know, could create their own business for themselves. Um, to, to use a less controversial example, uh, many people believe that antivirus companies uh, like AVG um, uh, and Norton actually create viruses and put them out there in order to be able to, to buy that. Now you could say, well, but, but then the, um, the invisible hand will, will cause competition for them. Well, it's not going to when you're already dealing with a, uh, a global uh, multinational um, that a small startup can't possibly compete with, um, you know, either in terms of, of uh, the product, breadth of product or in, in terms of price. And so um, while I think that your uh, logic is reasonable, I think that events have uh, repeatedly uh, demonstrated that there are other factors involved that uh, supersede that logic. Okay. And we'll go back to you. Okay, well, well thank you. First, let me put I mean, Enron did lose, right? A long-run investor in Enron was, was made worse off. Uh, I will agree that there, there can be horrible incentives for corporations. And the, the big example economists often point to is with pollution. That, you know, you make a product, but you pollute the water, pollute the air. You know, that, that doesn't affect you. You won't care. And that, that is a problem. And like, you know, even mo like most free market economists, I do think there needs to be some government regulation of corporations to take care of the horrible cases. Like, you know, you mentioned where they're releasing viruses. I, I hadn't heard that one before, but that... You know, I can imagine a corporation making money doing that, and you'd certainly want the police or national security agencies stopping that. The, the free market solution to that, I would say, would be to have a free press. That, if that were true, that would certainly be a story you'd imagine a lot of people would want to read about. And you know, if enough people found out about it, that might put enough pressure on politicians. Now, what you, you mentioned, um, politicians feeling they need to please the people, and they do. The problem is the people aren't informed. I mean, if I buy a pair of shoes and, and they're not comfortable, I suffer. If, so I have an incentive to research the shoes that I'm going to buy, and the same with all the products I get. But when I vote, well, my vote doesn't matter. I mean, the chance of my vote making a difference in an election is less than the chance of my being killed on the way to the voting booth. So I don't have an incentive to be informed. And surveys of voters show they really don't know what's going on. I mean, you know the big issues, you might know which candidate is for abortion and who's against it, but on most issues, people have no idea. You have no idea what your, your president's or congressman's position is on sugar subsidies or on how you tax capital gains. And the politicians know that on almost every issue, on all of the issues that are really important pretty much, they're not being watched because people don't care. And if they did care, they're not sophisticated enough to understand what's going on. So politicians please us by doing these sort of superficial things, by arguing about things like gay marriage or... I don't know, other, you know, other issues that happen to be in the news, and then they just do what the special interests want them to do on you know, the issues where they can make a lot of money, and that's just 
I know that's a, a very bad outcome. Now, you've, you've accused me correctly of being more concerned with theory than um, practice. And I, I admit, I, I do. I'm a theoretical economist, mostly. And I, I teach economic theory. So my, my brain tends to go more to theory than to the real world. But I'll, I'll try to correct for that. I would say I, the most important economic fact of the last few hundred years is that a large part of the world has gotten really rich really quickly. I mean, from the time of Alexander the Great to George Washington's birthday, I mean, the typical European really didn't see an increase in the standard of living. But then something happened around the Industrial Revolution that caused sustained economic growth. And then after it happened in Europe, some other countries adopted, like China and to a lesser extent India. And they seem to have done it in large part through embracing markets, through embracing Adam Smith's invisible hand, and through trade. So the big fact is that, you know, we really have trade and markets really have done a lot to increase wealth. And if you look at the last several thousand years of human history, something truly fantastic and spectacular and wonderful has happened. And I, I would say trade and, and markets deserve the credit. And we should have more of them so we can continue to grow and continue to get richer. Um, Vox? All right, I'll... I'll... I'll do my closing statement then. That sounded like a good closing statement, so I'll, I'll do mine and then we can um, do, do some questions in a show of hands. Um, first of all, I'd point out that uh, trade is not new. Um, countries were trading. Uh, we, have, we have records of um, significant amounts of international trade uh, going back before Rome, before Carthage. Um, I, when I was reading a book on, on Carthage, um, you know, it was actually set up as a initially as a trading colony for one of the um, for one of the uh, its predecessor states um, on the Mediterranean, and so uh, I think that simply from a historical perspective, that whatever is responsible for that explosion of wealth um, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, it was not trade that was responsible simply because trade has always been there. Um, my final point is going to be that uh, I don't believe that it is possible to separate the, the free movement of goods from the free movement of capital and from the free movement of people. Um, the reason that I say this is because um, Ludwig von Mises, who we both respect, um, specifically wrote in his book, Liberalism, he has a, a, a section called Freedom of Movement, and he talks about how um, the, uh, the effects of restricting this freedom, he's talking about the freedom of movement, are just the same as those of a protective tariff. And so all of the logic and all of the justifications that are used to justify the free trade in goods are equally applicable to the free trade in labor. Uh, in fact, Mises actually goes on to say, there cannot be the slightest doubt that migration barriers diminish the productivity of human labor. And so um, all of the arguments that apply to free trade also apply to the free movement of labor. And because the free movement of labor means that it is impossible to have national sovereignty or to maintain a, um, a functional nation, that therefore uh, both free movement of labor and the free movement of goods um, are intrinsically uh, antithetical to civilization, to the Constitution, 
and to any of the national values that, that we hold dear. And I'll turn it over to Matthew at this point. Matthew, are you there? Yes, just trying to unmute myself. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. I don't know if you guys were keeping your eyes on the clocks while you were talking, but you pretty much exactly paralleled each other with the amount of time that you spoke at each segment. It was really interesting, and everyone stayed on topic. Uh, what we're going to do now, according to my schedule here, we're going to have the audience start submitting their questions. This is going to be through the GoToMeeting interface that has a little uh, panel for submitting questions. I believe those go directly to Vox. Yeah, um, the, I will, uh, Dr. Miller, I will pass them over to you. If I, I'll read them to you, and then you can answer them. Oh, sure. If they're directed to you. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, While we're doing that, uh, we'll probably take a few minutes for everyone to get that in. And uh, so maybe someone will hum some Jeopardy music. In a minute, we're also going to retake that poll on positions on free trade. Okay. Uh, Vox and Dr. Miller, I'll let you go first, Dr. Miller. What are the downsides if you are wrong? Um, well, if I, if I am wrong and you know trade makes us poorer, then that, that would be a horrible thing because we'll grow slower, we'll have less innovation, we'll have less economic growth. Um, the, the coming Social Security and Medicare crisis will be much worse. And if I am wrong that uh, free trade necessarily leads to mass migration of labor, then I think the U.S. political system will become closer to the average political system in the world. And although I dislike our politicians, I dislike politicians in most of the world more. So our political system will indeed become more corrupt, and that will also make us poorer. So that's the downside if, if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, uh, I think that we're uh, going to be much better off. You know, uh, um, Certainly there seems to be, uh, has been for the past 40 years, movement towards free trade and, and that sort of thing. And if I'm wrong, then we should uh, expect to see um, a good economic outcome. And theoretically, if, if, if the free traders are correct and, and free trade um, enhances the prospects for peace and, and reduces the risks of war, then you know, we should be heading into um, a, you know, a wealthier and more peaceful future. And so I very much hope that I am wrong, and I very much hope that Dr. Miller is right, because, um, you know, I'm the editor of a, of a, I'm the assistant editor of a series called There Will Be War, so um, the fact that I'm not particularly optimistic probably won't surprise anyone. <laughs> All right, next question. Um, okay, questions, guys. We're not asking for responses to points. Um, okay. Uh, okay, yeah, okay. Um, how does free trade differ, this is for you, Dr. Miller, okay. under different monetary regimes like the international gold standard as opposed to free-floating exchange rates? Okay, well, first let me confess, I, I've stopped studying monetary economics after my first year of grad school, after I passed those exams, but the... It, what could happen is if you have a gold standard, that can sort of limit what the government does. So if the government wants to borrow a lot of money and you have a gold standard, it's harder for the government to raise the money through issuing bonds. So the government might have to push to 
We make sure their country exports more than it imports so it can raise the money, so it can raise money. So this is a reason like, you know, in, in medieval Europe, when kings wanted a lot of gold to go to war, it might have made a bit more sense for them to try to restrict imports and promote exports so they can get a lot of gold so they could pay their troops. When you have more of a fiat currency like we do, it's easier for governments that want to raise money just to, you know, to issue paper. And so they don't have to be as worried about whether there's, you know, imports are less than exports. All right. Um, here is a question for Dr. Miller. Um, when calculating the costs of each product to be traded, do you only consider the strict production costs, or do you also take into account social and economic costs such as unemployment, welfare, and so forth? Uh, well, you certainly should take into account all the costs. If you're making the case that free trade is beneficial, then yeah, an honest analysis would take into account all of those costs. Um, my guess is I would think that free trade on average decreases unemployment because it gives people more opportunities and it increases salary. But if I was wrong about that and if free trade increased unemployment, then that would be a big negative that would be take that you know should be counted against my position. Uh, for what reason did Vox not address the non-redeployment of disemployed former workers due to lavish safety nets? <laughs> um, probably because I don't think it's uh, a first order issue. I think that's a second order issue. Um, it's not. It's not nothing, but uh, I think it's a. It's a. a uh, not as important as some of the other factors that we discussed. Um, Dr. Miller, uh, you seem to dismiss the um, the debt issue. Is it your would it be your contention that debt equals wealth? Um, no, I think that the debt issue is is very problematic. The fact that the U.S. government borrows so much is is awful. But I don't connect that to trade. I don't think that restricting trade would make that any better. I blame this entirely on our our politicians. I'm not sure if you're referring to a different I, kind I, of I debt, though, than government debt. Well, no, I, I, I mean, we're just talking about overall debt. The, the issue that I, I was bringing up was less uh, about who's responsible, more about the fact that it's difficult for us to actually say whether we're wealthier or not uh, simply because of the amount of debt that's involved. You know, uh, are, are, we, are we genuinely wealthier as a result of trade or um, has has the effects of trade, the apparent effects of trade, been exaggerated because we are living um, on our credit cards? That's, oh, oh, I see. That's so, a big question. So you're saying if we're living on our credit cards, we're gonna, we might have more stuff now, but we have to pay back stuff in the future. Um, right. It's just, it's just, it's just a question of if you're talking about okay, well, we're better off because the living standard has increased. Mm -hmm. Well, if your living standard is inflated, then. Uh, you know, obviously, it's not a it's not a uh, a realistic measure. Okay, I that that's certainly a a possibility. I don't think that debt is high enough to actually cancel out the likely positive effects of economic growth absent some economic collapse. And I think really what's going on with debt is that China's horrible one child policy means they're going to have a generation of the one child when they're retired. It's going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard when they're the prime for them to take care of their elderly. So they need to save a huge amount of money and their banking system is crap, so they're saving it here. So effectively, it's China's one-child policy that's causing them to lend us money so that we can give it back to them when, you know, they're, when they're going to have a retirement crisis. And I don't think that's, sort of, that's mostly independent of trade. 
Here's another question for you. Uh, Dr. Miller, isn't the advent of the scientific revolution a much more significant factor in the improvement of the human condition over the last few centuries than free trade, uh, which, as Vox said, has been around since time immemorial? Uh, I think they're both necessary conditions. I mean, if you, know, you just have the Enlightenment and you have a bunch of Europeans speculating about the moons of Jupiter and, you know, cutting up cadavers to see what you know, where the blood goes, that doesn't make people better off. It re, you, you need mass production. You need people selling goods to lots of others. You need, you know, you need to apply this to industry and you need large markets for this to have a positive effect. But again, the Enlightenment is certainly a necessary, condi necessary condition for this wealth increase we've been experiencing. Here's a question for me. Um, I said the arguments for free trade and good, um, goods also apply to free trade and people. Um, I think we're talking about free trade and labor, not actual slaves. Um, however, do you think that arguments for restricting trade, particularly lower wages, also apply to unions and the minimum wage? Um, I think that they, I think that they can, um, but I, I would have to think through that one to be honest, because I've, I've never really, um, you know. I've never really spent much time worrying about the minimum wage or, or whatever. Um, let's see. This is an interesting point. I think a problem with the claims advanced by both parties is that they're non-contradictory. For instance, I might argue that Dr. Miller is almost certainly right in the short and medium runs with Vox right in the long term. Uh, he'd like both our responses on that. I'll, I'll let you go first. Oh, well, it is true. Some of our disagreements come down to values. And, you know, neither of us are right. We just, we just weight different things. Um, I would say I, I think that trade makes us richer in the, long, in the short run and the long term. So I, I would disagree with that point. But some of it is. It is values. And it's, you know, it, we're not contradicting each other. Yeah, I, I think that there is, um, I think that in, in, the, that in the short term, it is, it's certainly the case looks better for free trade than it does in the long term. You know, I, I mean, I was a free trader myself for a long, long time, and you know, the, the logic is still attractive to me. I still like it. Um, it's, you know, for me, it's merely looking at the, um, at the compa the, the, the difference between the, uh, the theory and the real world results that, that caused me to shift my thinking on it. Um, but, you know, we'll find out soon enough, I expect. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, Dr. Miller already said that, that, he, that there are people who lose more from free trade than they gain, so we don't need to deal with that. Um, question for Dr. Miller. Is it correct to say that bureaucratized corporate boards are more accountable to, to customers than bureaucratized politicians? Uh, yes, I, I certainly think that's true. Because you know customers have much more of an incentive to care about the quality of the product and to investigate it than voters do, so I think effectively corporate boards are more accountable than than politicians. Another question for you: Does the trade balance matter in free trade? Um, I not really. I think that's of a second order concern. I mean, it. You know, they're, they're different, for, like, again, because I said before, China wants to have to save a lot of money because of their one-child policy, so they, it's very important to them to have a certain kind of trade balance. And if you're growing really quickly, you want a lot of money invested in your country, you also might want a certain kind of trade balance. But it's, it's really not that important for the United States, I don't think. Okay. Um, somebody has a follow-up question for me. 
uh, what if <laughs> what if you're wrong, but we think you're right, and we cut down on free trade? What happens? Okay. Well, um, in other words, <laughs> what asking me the question that was asked of you? Um, if I'm wrong, then uh, I think that we will see uh, less wealth. You know, that we would see a lower standard of living. Um, and but I, I guess it's it's hard for me to even answer that because. Um, I would assume that we would, if I'm, if we were fo if we follow what I recommend, then we would have significantly less uh, immigration. We'd have significantly less labor mobility, and so uh, theoretically, we would see a more homogenous country that was poorer. So um, that would be my conclusion. Uh, let's see here. Ha Okay. Dr. Miller, do you have any theoretical predictions on the distribution of wealth produced by free trade? That is, when we get richer, are there winners and losers? Well, I, I think on average, most people are, are going to be winners. You, you can argue that the very poor benefit a lot because they get like much cheaper goods. Like in the United States, poor people, actually even in Bangladesh, very poor people have cell phones. So being able to make a lot of low quality, a lot of goods very cheaply is extraordinarily helpful to the poor. Um, I mean, it would depend on the industry. I mean, certainly if, for example, we, we restricted all trade in automobile manufacturing, you definitely help auto workers and auto executives, whereas cutting back on trade would greatly harm American computer programmers because we export so much and our computer programmers can earn such high salaries. So there might be some differences, although overall for the income distribution, I think it probably helps pretty much everyone in all the income distributions, especially when you take into account the fact that, you know, poor people are often reliant upon um, welfare and that the welfare dollars will go a lot farther if they can buy cheap foreign goods, and a lot of them do. Here's one for me. Vox, what do you believe are the reasons behind the quick growth in the wealth of the countries mentioned by Dr. Miller, China, Taiwan, South Korea, and so forth? Um, well, I think it's pretty simple. I think that free trade is fantastic if you're trading up. If you're a poor country, then uh, you should support free trade. And in fact, that's what we used to see. Um, you know, the, the U.S. was, was very pro-Britain um, being free, uh, free trading while protecting its own, um, its own industries. And um, you know, certainly we saw uh, the, the Asian tigers pursue the same strategy there. You know, they, they, um, it was, they were uh, very into free trade on, on the other side. So I think I think that you know if you because if if you look at the results of, of free trade it does it is true it does make uh, it does raise the overall average. The problem is is that it is it is definitely in in my opinion it is definitely bad if you are the uh, company that or if you're the country that is um, uh, the wealthier country because it will bring you down to to that higher global average and so. You know, that, that's why I think that, that free trade is, is fundamentally uh, globalist. But um, let's have another question for Dr. Miller here. Um, to do, to do, do, do. Um, okay, Dr. Miller, if you don't impose tariffs for the time being, but keep the option available if they seem to, if the other parties seem to be engaging in trade war, would you consider that free trade or non-free trade? 
well, that actually can be a good tool to increase free trade if done correctly. So the idea is if another country, say automakers in Japan, refuse to allow the importation of American cars because automakers in Japan have a lot of political power, it might make sense for us to threaten tariffs on their goods in order for them to open up their markets. The danger there is, of course, if they call our bluff and we both impose trade restrictions and tariffs on each other, then we'll both get poorer. But that, that, that can sometimes work. That is a legitimate argument to say that to open up your markets, I'll, you know, I will um, figure out what is the most politically powerful industry in your country and I will punish them. So that is, that is a reasonable strategy. Hey, since you're a game theorist, I have to drop I have to drop one on you, and I'm sure you you've heard of this. But one of the I read an old paper, it's like 1971 or something, and it it actually examined free trade from the uh, prisoner's dilemma perspective, and it it was pretty clear, and that's why I thought it was interesting that you're both a game theorist and a free trader, because according to these uh, specialists, and you, you know maybe you have are aware of an, an updated argument, but they pointed out that the prisoner's dilemma points to the um, the ideal play for the wealthier player to be re- uh, reactive, but that the the correct play for the poorer player was always to uh, be protectionist, and so therefore game theory indicates a pro- uh, uh, a protectionist position rather than a free trade position. What's, what's your response to that? Well, um, I don't really agree with that. I, I don't think that it's you, you should model trade as a prisoner's dilemma because in a, in a prisoner's dilemma, if that were true, the best outcome for me would be that I could sell you my goods, but you couldn't sell me yours. That's the, the mercantilist position. And I, I don't think that's the best position. The best position is that everyone can freely trade everything. And then even if we accept you can model trade through the prisoner's dilemma, the problem is, I'm actually teaching this this week in my game theory class, and the repeated prisoner's dilemma, there's like an infinite number of strategies, and it, it's, I don't think you can really say that without knowing more context that one set is better for one kind of person than the other. A lot of it depends on reputation, that, you know, I'll, I'll want a strategy where if you're going to attack me, I'll attack back, and you'll think I'll inflict a lot of damage on you. So. I'll send. I'll send you the paper. Okay, I'll, I'll thank send you. you a link to it. Okay, yeah, thanks. If nothing else, you'll. I mean, you'll probably find it uh, interesting, um, if a little bit. Uh, actually, Matthew just uh, sent you uh, the JSTOR link. Oh, great! Thanks. So, thanks, Matthew. See that. Um, okay, let, what time is it, Matthew? It is. Uh, we've got. We've got uh, thirty-five minutes left. Okay, great. Um, well, let's see. Let's. Why don't we go ahead and take the vote now, and then we can then we can take some more questions, or we can, uh, you know, see see what our response is to that. Okay, sure. I can right. see it going way. So, okay, Matthew, Everybody go ahead. Hands down. If you have your hand raised for some reason, put it down. We're going to ask the questions again. And uh, oh, box, if you can, you note down how many people we have listening now. Yeah, I was going to say that's something that we need to keep in mind. We'll we'll have to work out the percentages because we had about a hundred and sixty-five people voting before, and now we've got 215. So at least uh, at least people were interested. Okay. <laughs> It'll be back in early 25. Yeah. First question then I'm going to ask is, how many of you actually voted the last time? Raise your hands. Oh, no, I can't. I'm not, no. <laughs> you want to know? Well, okay, yeah. But I, okay, we have one, two, three, four, five, six. 
Uh, it's somewhere between 155 and 170. Okay, cool. So the first real question then is, uh, so everyone put your hands down, please. Uh, and then once they're all down, raise your <laughs> hand if, if you are, uh, raise your hand if you're in favor of free trade. Twenty-four. Twenty-four. Okay. Uh, hands down. That was, that, was that was compared to thirty-five the, before. Hands down, everybody. And uh, then raise your hand if you want. Stop, stop, stop. I need to get rid of these. There's a couple people that have, uh, they don't seem to be able to put them down. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so next, raise your hand if you oppose free trade. It's like 110. Whoa. <laughs> we did have a number of people uh, joining the meeting after the initial poll, though. <laughs> All right. Uh, hands put, down. Put, them, put them down and then uh, neutrals. Yep. But you need to tell them. <laughs> oh, I need to tell them? All right. Everyone raise your hand if you're neutral. If you still remain neutral after this compelling debate. Fifty-two. Fifty-two. Okay. So. Well, Dr. Miller, I, I, my recommendation—I mean, just uh, because this is a this is a friendly debate—is mm -hmm. I think that um, I think that you need to look at adding more um, practical substance to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, you have a very very uh, a very very competent and, and uh, professional grasp of the, the theory. But I was, I was not terribly surprised by the results because I was, um, you know, every, everything is so abstract, but what we're seeing, what all of us are seeing is, is not, mm -hmm. you know. And actually, I think I, what I would like to, to do sometime, if, if you're interested, is I think we ought to look into this, this whole um, innovation, wealth, and trade triangle, and figure out. You know, it, nobody. I, I mean, I, I I did a little bit of looking around today to see, and it doesn't exist. Okay. You know, it, it simply it simply doesn't exist, and um, you know it, it's fine to work on the uh, uh, to work on the theory of it, but at some point in time, and, and I'm I'm familiar. You know, even Murray Rothbard, 
who you know as well as I do, was opposed to empiricism. But even he changed his mind about um, open immigration on the basis of, of the uh, facts of the situation being different than he expected on the basis of his theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, well, what's, your, what's your perspective? Um, well, first, you know, congratulations. You, you fairly beat me um, by, by quite a convincing ma- margin. Uh, yeah, I mean, that would certainly be an interesting issue to look into. I, I imagine there are a lot of economic papers. There might be mostly theoretical, I'm not sure, that look into the relationship between innovation and, and trade. Although, again, one way to look at it is look at the most innovative companies and do they do a lot of global trade? If they do, that is a sign that trade is important to them. If, like, you know, Apple and Google, they do right. they trade an enormous amount. So but I'm I'm curious I'm curious to know, um, did, are, uh, you know you you're much more versed in the literature than I am obviously, um, were, did were any of the po- did any of the points that I raised were any of them new to you in any way, and did you do you find any of them even, um, remotely, let's not say convincing but uh, worthy of further investigation or do you still f- find it you know, generally irrelevant. Um, well, I mean, I thought well, the point you raised about labor mobility was interesting because most economists would consider that we don't have enough labor mobility. So that was just sort of an right. accepted assumption. And I never really considered it that way, that it was, you know, in ways it might be, might be damaging. So that was the, that was the one major point, major point you raised that I hadn't, you know, when I discussed trade in my class, I don't really bring in, mm-hmm. um, but for others, I mean, I do, I know, I do still, I think that I'm, you know, my position is right. Again, I certainly admit you, you certainly won this debate. But I, I do think, you know, the theoretical arguments are, are very strong. And if you look at what's happening, I mean, the hard thing about talking about looking at practical examples with trade, I mean, you could resort to, like, statistical studies. But, you know, if you're, you're just going to pick, like, specific examples, like, this company yeah, did the, better the, than... The, the statistics yeah. are mostly bullshit. We know that. And that's that's... <laughs> That's what makes this whole discussion so difficult. And I have to admit, there were times when, you know, I, I've um, I've read a little bit of your book on game theory, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a I was, it was kind of appalling because this debate would be so much better if we if we wrote it. <laughs> you know, yeah. neither one of us is is ever going to you know be doing our own talk show. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it sometimes the the thoughts just don't come out as well out of your mouth as as they do when you when you write them out. But um, you know, f- from my part, I think that um, the the I, I need to do a better job of going through the logic of uh, you know of actually breaking down the logical syllogisms and being able to point to okay, this this is the step where I think it goes awry because I did not I did not do that at all tonight and so obviously it was you know it's not mm-hmm. gonna, it's not going to convince anyone who has a more abstract logical position mm-hmm. because you correctly were able to call you know so some of those things into at least question mm-hmm. well yeah it's almost impossible to do that in, in a debate like this right But I think I think I think it's worthwhile because I you know what I really wanted to do was I wanted to um, you know I just wanted to see what from the other side I might be missing and I think that your uh, your your big and your your strong point both rhetorically 
and logically is, you know, I don't trust the politicians. I mean, that's yeah. hard for me to argue with. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. don't trust, I don't trust them either. Um, you know, so the, the question, what it really comes down to is, is it, um, you know, can we trust the corporations to be reined in by the invisible hand? And that's something that I think that it's not a bad idea for, you know, mm. for um, someone on either side of the issue to look more deeply into. Mm. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I would hope that people on the right are more supportive of free trade than the left, because if you are suspicious of politicians, that's an argument pushing you in favor of having markets control things rather than politicians. Right. Um, here, let's go. Let's. We've got plenty more questions okay. here. Do you mind taking a few? Oh, questions? sure, sure. Okay. Um, Dr. Miller, would unrestricted immigration into the United States raise or, or lower the standard of living for living Americans and their kids over the next 40 years? Oh, God. I mean, that would be such a radical change. I imagine like a billion people would probably come to the United States if we had fully open borders. And so I was like, I have huge uncertainty over how that would turn out. I could imagine it going disastrously wrong or, it, you know, it could go very well. So I, I just have to say I, I'm not I'm really not sure of that one. Um, let's see. Okay. So some of these are like kind of more statements than mm -hmm. questions per se. <laughs> Vox, do you support Nazi style autarky? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> That's not a leading question at all. <laughs> are you supportive of limited free trade with countries with similar standards of living and culturally, culturally compatible? Um, I support limited free trade. I mean, I wouldn't call it free trade. I would say I support limited trade um, as long as it does not lead to immigration um, that exceeds more than, you know, uh, a total immigration population, uh, immigrant population of more than, you know, 2% or so. Um, you know, that's my position. That's, frankly, of, of pretty much a number picked out of thin air. Um, but, no, I, I do not support... Nazi-style autarky. Um, the, uh, about the only thing that are good about the Nazis, I would say, are the uniforms. Um, which, let's face it, they're pretty snappy, but then again, it's Hugo Boss, so what do you expect? Um, Off-topic off question for Dr. Miller. You seem to have graduated from the University of Chicago in its glory days. What did you think of Dr. Stigler, McCloskey, and Friedman? Um, unfortunately, I didn't have any of them as professors. I think they're mostly gone by the time I was there. So I wasn't able to, you know, I mean, from what I've read of them, they're great people, but I, I didn't have them as professors, unfortunately. Okay. Um, okay, here's one for me. Um, uh, even were Dr. Miller correct with regard to free trade increasing money wealth overall for everyone, would you still prefer a more homogenized society rich in a kind of culture wealth? Um, I have to say that I, you know... <laughs> Despite speaking four languages and having lived in five different countries, um, I, I think I would. Um, I don't. Th I mean, I wouldn't want to trade it for a you know a, a homogenized society like India um, or something. But um, you know, like I said, there's. Uh, I think that moderation is a reasonable standard. I mean, no matter what, no matter what happens. We're not going to go to a completely free trade, free movement um, world, and we're also not going to go to a completely mercantilistic aut autarky. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, we're 
we're going to be somewhere in between regardless of who is right. Um, may I respond to that question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think that over the long run, economic growth is just incredibly important. I mean, a slightly different growth rate can give you the United States versus Mexico in terms of, of wealth. So if you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of growth for some cultural achievements or cultural homogeneity, you know, in the short run, it's not a big deal, but your grandchildren are going to be vastly poorer, even with, you know, because of the magic of compound interest. Just a slightly smaller growth rate over 100 years matters enormously. And so you're paying a very big cost. That's true. But, you know, what, I mean, one thing that economics doesn't get into, um, and, and perhaps it's going to need to, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a, eventually some sort of field of, like, genetic economics mm-hmm. or something. But, um, you know, there's, we know that uh, a few small, uh, j- just as compound interest makes a big difference, um, uh, the average IQ, a few points of average IQ can also make a massive difference as well. You know, there, some people are starting to look at um, declining aspects of the USA and, and are realizing that, hey, maybe this has something to do with the fact that the average IQ has dropped about four points. <laughs> you know, so uh, chicken, egg, mm-hmm. co- you know, causal factor, we'll, we'll have to see which is which is more important. Well, but it's possible that, that mm-hmm. the growth, you know, that the growth... Um, comes from you know having more smart people or, uh, than than we did before. Uh, yeah, I mean having a lot of smart people certainly helps, and a lot of economists you know say we we certainly should allow anyone with a high IQ and who's young and healthy to move to the United States. But my, I would say certainly within twenty years we're probably going to have be able to manipulate embryos and we'll do stuff with DNA and that you know your your IQ and your kid's IQ won't really be causally related. The parents will get to pick the genes of their kids, so this won't be an issue. Right. Um, okay. Dun, 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 dun. Um, it's a third, uh, Dr. Miller, do you do you support TPP? I'm not. Is that the um, the big trade? Yeah. Um, do you support that, and if so or not, to what extent, and what are your qualifiers? Um, I, I do support it. I certainly haven't read it, and I imagine there's a lot of horrible things in there where you're giving special tax breaks or special trade privileges to politically powerful companies. But my, my guess is overall it will increase the amount of trade to the United States and countries in the Pacific, and it will make us a bit richer. Okay. Um, question of Vox. Would you mind explaining uh, or a little further or provide a couple of examples of how the trade with China would bring us down to the higher average? Um, well, sure. If you, uh, you know, if, we're, if you lose enough of your manufacturing base and, and, you know, your wages decrease as a result because people are not, you know, putting together refrigerators, but they're buying cheaper ones from China, then um, the Chinese uh, wages are rising. You know, they, they start out much. They start out much lower. Um, you know, in, in some places they're there's much as as uh, ten times lower. Um, and and those raises increase. The U.S. wages decrease a little bit. Now, supposedly, um, the increase in U.S. productivity is is going to be enough to make up for the difference. The problem with that is that if you look at the and again with the caveat that the statistics are I'm dubious about them too. But the, the big problem is that the, the difference in productivity is no longer um, enough to uh, make up for that, that difference in wages 
And also, the U.S. is no longer the most productive nation in the world. It's, it's about, depending on the measure, it's anywhere from number three to number 20. Um, and so, um, even if the argument is, is uh, correct, um, it, it, it's not, uh, it, not going to benefit the USA the way that it's supposed to, just because we're not in as strong a position productivity-wise as, as we used to be vis-a-vis -vis some of these other countries. Um, let's see. Uh, I wish they, these questions would go to Matthew, not to, not to me. Uh, yes, this is a, Vi a Vikings t-shirt. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, would each side please d define what they mean by free trade? Uh, sure. Um, free trade is that, you know, you as a consumer, you have the right to buy a good made anywhere in the world if you're willing to pay the whatever price the maker um, charges for it. I don't, uh, I don't disagree with that. I would also further add that it, that it's, um, it's the free, it's the free ability to engage in any economic transaction of any kind, um, without interference from a, uh, from a third party. So um, that's why I include the free movement of people and free movement of labor, because obviously I can't, you know, if I'm in Italy, I can't, I can't give Dr. Miller a haircut from here. Um, you know, I would have to go there in order to provide him my haircutting services. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so um, let's see here. Uh, in all fairness to Dr. Miller, Vox's audience is more inclined to agree with him, <laughs> which is fair. Um, he said, I, I found my opinions competently challenged, forcing, forcing me to question myself, although I still happen to agree with Vox. So that's oh. a point for you, I well, think. Well, thank you very much. Um, the, yeah, and, and the thing is, I, I, I was, a, you know, I mean, you're, to a certain extent, uh, you're coming into a friendly lion's den here, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it was, uh, I'm, I'm glad that unlike Matt Walsh, that you were not afraid to, uh, <laughs> well, so, it's, it's, I don't know if you heard, heard about that, but he had challenged, uh, this is just some, uh, guy who writes for Glenn Beck. He mm -hmm. challenged any Trump supporter to, to, to a debate. And I said, sure, I'll debate. You. <laughs> He's like, no, no, no. I, I, I only meant if you had a TV show. <laughs> oh gosh. I think he just wanted to be on TV. Um, let's see. Not a statement. Okay. <laughs> Exclamation point. Not a statement. <laughs> Dr. Miller, can you counter Vox's answer to Vox's reasons for why the Asian tiger countries have grown up in wealth so quickly, basically that they've traded up while protecting their own industries? Um, well, let's see. I don't, I mean, they have gotten richer by, by trading up. I mean, normally you do benefit more by trading with rich countries than with poor countries because rich countries are by definition better at creating stuff that you want. So I agree a large part of the reason that China's gotten richer is through, you know, trading with rich countries because it was extraordinarily poor at the time. But the reason, the reason they're, let's, the reason they're made better off is because when you, Trade, you know, you can import you can import innovation when you make your products or more places you can sell it to. So a lot of the reasons why you can benefit from trading with rich countries also apply to a bit lesser extent, but they do also apply when you trade with poorer countries. 
And of course, there's even more of a cultural challenge when you're trading with richer countries because, you know, your people will be impressed by all the nice cultural goods that they're making. So they've actually got, there's more cultural challenge, I think, when you're trading up than when you're trading down. Somebody said, you guys should do this as a series and refine your ideas as you go along. <laughs> um, I, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to you know, have Dr. Miller on uh, again sometime if oh, you like. thank you, yes. Um, then, uh, does the ex question for both, does the extensive trade between the United States and China make each country less likely to go to war against each other? Uh, I mean, I would hope so. The, the argument for is that if we went to war and we stopped trading with each other, a lot of our industries would be disrupted. So a lot of the elites would be really angry because they would say, hey, wait a minute, if we go to war, you know, let's assume this isn't a war where we're exchanging hydrogen bombs, but a war where like a few thousand soldiers are shooting at each other but we still stop you know, the exchange of goods, then a lot more of the elites in both countries would suffer. I mean, also, a simple example, China uses a lot of the money they get from trade with us to send a lot of their kids to college in the United States. So that probably makes the elites a lot less likely in China to shoot us with missiles because they'll be blowing up their own sons and daughters. My personal pers I mean, does it make it more likely or less likely? I mean... It's, it's, it, this is a chicken or the egg question for me because if we look at countries that go to war, countries that go to war usually go to war with countries that they traded with. But that usually is because they happen to be close to them. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you're close, if you're neighbors, you're more likely to both trade and go to war with each other. Um, I'm going to have to punt on that one because I haven't done the necessary research. Um, Certainly, however, what I will say is that China is more likely to go to war, period, as a result of the uh, increase in wealth and technology that they have uh, acquired as a result of trade, free or not. Um, you know, they would not, if we had not been trading with them, they probably would not have an aircraft carrier, quite literally, because I, I think they bought their first aircraft carrier from France. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's basically a re revamped French one. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think that, that now, are, are we more likely to go to war with, I mean, they're not more likely to attack the USA. They're more likely to attack someone else who would then cause the USA to attack them. So I, I would, I'm going to have to say yes. I think that, that in that particular case, uh, U.S.-China war is more likely as a result of the, um, the increased trade. For example, uh, the first big opium wars um, came about because of British trade in opium there. Yeah, so, that's um, true. Here's a, here's a great question for you. And um, I should mention, by the way, that one thing that we haven't discussed is that Dr. Miller is um, rather well known for his, his talks on the singularity, which I know is of interest to a, a fair number of you here. Um, since you wrote a book on it, what role might singularity-related joblessness play in future economic prospects? For example, for i.e., what becomes of the lower IQ portion of the population, which may actually be everyone, that cannot compete in a hyper-competitive post-singularity environment? Well, what do they do? Sell their, sell their <laughs> organs? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it depends what kind of singularity we have. Unfortunately, there's a good chance we'll have a singularity where we'll create machines and they'll just decide to kill us to use our atoms for something else. So then it, it doesn't 
really matter whether what your IQ is. In a positive singularity, we'll have machines. Wait, did, did, did you just say most likely? Yes, it's most likely we're going to develop we're going to develop an AI, and the AI will have some objective. Wants to be very good at chess or analyzing the stock market. And there's a limited amount of atoms in the universe, so we're rival to any goal an AI might have. So unless an AI is specifically and mathematically designed to be friendly to us, if it's smarter than we are, it's probably going to kill us. Not out of malice, but out of indifference. So I, I love the fact. I love the fact that <laughs> you said that after spending the entire time being the the sort of I'm naive. I'm optimistic. <laughs> da, da, da. Oh, by the way, the machines will kill you all. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah that, Yes, um, but on the other, oh, it's like three in the morning. My time, I'm a little punchy. But if the singularity goes well, then we won't have to work. I mean, we'll do things like podcasts, and you know, people will write books because they enjoy it. But we can live like um, like aristocrats. They'll, they won't. We won't be able to productively compete in the marketplace because machines will be so much more productive than us. But that's a good thing. Most people don't like their job, and it would be great if machines did all the work and we got all the benefits, or we got most of the benefits. So I think so either... So you're, you're, you're talking about basically the, the post-scarcity singularity. There'll still be scarcity because there's still probably a limited number of molecules in the universe, but we'll be able to have such a fantastically higher standard of living than we do now. And you know, they'll be rich and poor, but the, the poor will still have so much more than what the, what the richest people have today. I, I figure the good outcome is that the machines decide that they're attracted to us, and so that we're all like sex slaves for machines or something, which, frankly, if you think about it, we may actually be partway there already. So. Um, but honestly, it's so unlikely that we would be the ideal sex slaves for machines. It's almost certainly they could design better ones, given all the possible combinations, that it's just mathematically, it's like one in a hundred trillion odds of that working out that way. For all, for all we know, they'll really like okapis and start like breeding them intensely and, and we'll, we'll all end up like becoming okapi keepers or something. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, um, I'll try to get back to Earth here. Um, okay. If there was an economic bubble crash in one trading partner, wouldn't free trade be more likely to cause contagion? Uh... Yeah, that's certainly true. And this is an issue of financial systems. If you have interlinking banks, bank systems and like the banks in Europe collapse, would we would it hurt our banks and we'd be obligated to bail out their banks? And that's actually a good point. And a lot of this comes to where I mean, we have a horribly regulated banking system where the bankers kind of get whatever they want. And it's possible free trade can make it worse. But it also can make it a lot better because banks, if you have a well-run banking system, it's spreading its risks everywhere. So if you have just a national bank and things are bad in that country, the bank goes under and everyone loses. But if the bank can you know, have its money everywhere and the United States does badly, it still won't go under because its investments in other countries are all right. So given a decent political structure, no. Given the actual political structure, maybe. Um, we have a demand for you to do a TED Talk on the idea of Humanity and the AI, the AIs attracted to okapis. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. I, I think we'll have to uh, excuse you if you don't want to like sacrifice your career to that. <laughs> well, I. That won't be the worst things I've done career-wise. Okay, um, 
Dr. Mill, we've got five minutes left, so um, why don't you make the uh, concluding statement here? Okay. Um, and and uh, we'll turn it over to you. Sure. Well, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to me today. And, uh, you know, congratulations, Vox, on winning. But I, I still think, despite the result, that free trade really does make us richer. And it makes us richer really for the same reason that trading with people, you know, across the town or in another state makes you richer. It is true, as Vox said, that when you trade with people in other countries, there'll be some labor mobility. But at least if you're a very big country, it doesn't have to be that much. I mean, most of the immigration coming to the United States has not resulted because we want to trade goods and services. It's resulted because, you know, we're richer than our neighbors and they want to come here. So if we were to restrict trade with Mexico, then we would be making Mexico poorer probably relative to the United States and more Mexicans would try to come here illegally. Um, generally, I think we should put a lot of weight on consumer sovereignty. This is one of the disagreements I had with Fox. And, you know, if I want to buy a good made in China, I don't think that you should have a right to tell me no unless you have some very good reason. You know, the, the good is causes panda bears to die or it's being made by tortured children. But if I want to make some agreement with some adults in China, I'll say, look, I'll give you money, you put something together and give it to me. I, it bothers me a lot that someone else would say, no, 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 you can't do that for these complicated reasons. And it bothers me even more if it's politicians who have these horrible incentive systems especially given that the politicians are not going to be saying no because of the common good. They're going to be saying no because special interests have bribed them to do something. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll end with a point that we really, you know, there, there has been trade throughout human history, but it really accelerated with the Industrial Revolution. It really accelerated once we had um, cheap shipping, once we had railroads, and we, now once we have airline travel, that we have just so much more trade, and this does play a enormous part in why we're richer. When historians, when archaeologists look at the consequences of the collapse of the Roman Empire, they found that Europe got a lot poorer, and probably the big reason was because trade went down. That once you lost the Roman Empire, people couldn't safely transport their goods very far. So you had less specialization, people had to do more for themselves, and the world got a lot poorer. So even back in ancient times, Trade increased wealth, and it increases wealth so much more today. It's true there's a lot of economic problems. There are a lot of things that are messed up, but restricting trade would make most of these problems worse. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Right. Well, Dr. Miller, thanks so much for coming by. Um, I think that we'll have to uh, do something like this again sometime, um, perhaps on a, on a uh similar or uh, perhaps even um, if, if we get the chance to refine our arguments, um, we can do it again and give it a whack. So Absolutely. Uh, thanks again, and thanks everyone for uh, stopping by and listening to us, and I hope you'll uh, show up for one of the future brainstorms. Okay. Bye-bye.